Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock and uh, we are moving on and that means this is the opportunity to ask the Naked Scientist whatever it is that you are curious about. We are starting to take your calls right now on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, Happy New Year! And to you, Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everyone else, of course. Thank you very much. It's lovely to hear your voice again. Chris, we've been chatting about insurance premiums. Somebody phoned in to say she feels discriminated against because she's single and therefore premiums are higher. And lots of SMSs coming in, people confirming this, that indeed my premium was reduced when I got married. We're more high risk when we are single. So what was your life like, Chris? Were you wild before you got married or <laughs> and, and more stable now? Um. Probably. Um, I think my wife has a very big calming influence on me. Certainly keeps me under control. Um, yeah, I, I had the same experience actually. I was, I'm trying to renew my car insurance and I phoned up the insurance company the other day to put my car onto this new company. Mm-hmm. And they said, will it be just you or you and a partner? And I said, uh, oh, it'll be me and a partner. And then they said, oh yes, that, because I thought that would add value. I thought it would make it more expensive. And they said, oh no, that, that's going to re- remove quite a bit of money. And so I initially thought, well, why is that? And they said, well, the, the reason for this is that if you go on a long journey and you're taken unwell, then your partner will drive the car home, so the car is much less likely to be damaged. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, is that your experience? Mm, mm, well, that's well. I haven't. I'm, I'm going back to my insurance uh, companies, and I'm going to renegotiate the terms. Uh, so I'm sure they'll reduce it since my. The terms are: um, you either pay it or they don't get your job. <laughs> 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 they make it make me a reduction, or I'll go elsewhere. <laughs> That's the amount that they charge, actually, is quite disgusting, because the company I was using, uh, I, I've just knocked about some, how much did I save? Thou- several thousand rand hmm. um, by a changing company. Wow. Because I think that they, there is this sort of fiscal drag, and if mm. you stay with the same person year on year, the price just inexorably yes, rises, yes, because they know how to sort of laziness, yeah. you'll just stay with them. And I looked at the price hike, and I thought, I'm just not paying that. Mm, mm. We need to be vigilant as consumers. We certainly do. Let's go straight to the lines. It's Rob in Tableview. Hi there, Rob. Morning, sir. I hope you have a good 2011. Thank you. Anyway, my, my question is, that, you know, you get nuclear power submarines and aircraft carriers and that type of thing. Is it only the security issue that stops um, us having that, that type of um, setup um, to assist like small towns or um, or companies, you know, manufacturing companies, or is it financial? 
Thank you. Hello, Rob. So, the, the problem, or the question, I suppose, could be condensed into why don't we have a little nuclear power oh. station on every street corner just to supply the needs? Because this is an incredibly clean, in many respects, and also very, very compact source of power. And the answer is exactly the one that you mentioned. Um, a nuclear reactor is potentially very, very dangerous if it's in the wrong hands. And the reason for that is that nuclear reactors contain fissile uranium. This is uranium-235, to make it simple. And what that means is that uranium comes in a number of different types in nature, different isotopes. There are lighter forms and heavier forms. And the lighter form, uranium-235, decays by spitting out neutrons, which then go and lodge in the nucleus of another 235 uranium atom and make it unstable so it falls apart and produces more neutrons, which go off and find other uranium atoms and lodge in their nuclei and make them unstable and make them fall apart. And that's the nuclear chain reaction. And every time those fissions, those falling apart of the nuclei happen, then some energy is given out, and that energy is in the form of heat, which can be collected by either a gas or in some reactors water, and that heat is then used to produce steam, and that steam is then used to, to drive turbines. Um, the problem is that if it's not properly controlled, that reaction can become a runaway chain reaction because the reactor contains moderating elements, chemicals which are very dense and capable of soaking up these excess neutrons to slow down the number of uranium atoms that get hit and therefore begin to break down. And if the control system isn't carefully maintained, then the reactor can become more and more excited breaking down more and more uranium so the temperature goes higher and higher and higher so the pressure inside the reactor goes up and up and up and up. And the consequence of that is you can have a meltdown. And no one wants that because of the potential huge threat for contamination and danger to human life. And that means that uh, that's one of the problems because it could fall into the wrong hands or become a target for terrorists mm -hmm. or people destroying it. The other is that in order to make the fuel that the reactor is going to run on, this uranium-235, the amount of uranium-235 in nature as a proportion of all of the uranium is really low. So you have to enrich the uranium. And what that means is you have to have special plants that can separate out the heavier and lighter forms of uranium and make all this very, very enriched 235 uranium. And that means you've then got to have uh, a, an opportunity again for people to go and steal that enriched uranium, which is the stuff from which you could make bombs. So the whole industry is very safe in the right hands and very unsafe in the mm -hmm. wrong hands, and therefore it's restricted to people whom the governments of various countries who have this potential think can be well controlled. All right, thank you very much for that question, uh, Rob. And uh, to me in Johannesburg, hi. Hi, Vivi. Mm. Um, Happy New Year. Yes, welcome. Um, thank you. To the, to the scientists, is, um, if you can have a, a heart or lung or kidney transplant, why can't you transplant the whole eye and not just the cornea, like the whole eyeball? Hello, Dumi. Yes, that's a very good question. And Happy New Year to you too, by the way. And the reason for this is that the eye is not just a single simple structure consisting of something that collects light, because at the back of the eye is the retina. And the retina is is said to be an extension of your central nervous system, your brain and spinal cord. And in other words, if you look at the back of the eye, you see a very big fat optic nerve that runs back into the brain carrying the signals from the retina into the parts of the brain that can decode visual images. And what we know about the brain and spinal cord 
is that unlike the peripheral nervous system, nerves that supply your fingers and toes, if you damage the nerves of the central nervous system, they don't regrow properly, if at all. And so if you were to take the eye out, at least in a human, then the nerves that run from the retina into the brain will be severed. And even if you put the eye back in and wired it up to the right blood vessels and even put the nerve ends together, the nerves would not grow properly. And as a result, you would end up blind, but with an eyeball that looked all right. Mm -hmm. Now, scientists have used this model to try to understand the, the regeneration of nerves in the central nervous system. And there was actually a very clever scientist about 50 or 60 years ago called Roger Sperry, who was working in America. And what he did was to work on frogs and newts and salamanders and, and fish and things, because unlike humans and mammals, these animals can regenerate nerves in their central nervous system. And he did some very clever experiments on frogs where he took the eye out of a frog, turned the eye upside down, and put it back in again. And when you do that, the frog's retina does reconnect itself back to the nervous system, but because the retina is now upside down, what the frog is seeing is a world that is upside down and back to front, because the retina connects itself back up to the brain in, in the way that it used to be connected to the brain when the eye was the right way up. And when he used to dangle a fly on a piece of string in front of these frogs, mm. rather than jumping forward and upwards to take a gulp of the fly, the frogs used to jump backwards and bite the ground because they thought the fly was in totally the wrong place relative to them. And, and as Roger Sperry says, the stupid frogs never learned, <laughs> proving that it had to be a hardwired thing in their nervous system. They were making mm. a mistake that they couldn't correct. Um, so scientists are very interested in studying these simpler animals to understand how the nervous system does rewire itself in them mm. because if we can work out how they do it, it might be possible to apply the same to higher animals like us in order to rescue people from things like eye problems, brain problems or spinal cord injury. To me, thanks indeed. Now, Chris, this SMS came through several, on several occasions last year. For some reason, I never got an opportunity to ask you. But this person has SMSed again and says, okay, I want no excuses this time. Here's my question again. We've all heard about the hazards of keeping your pee in for too long. What are the, ha um, the hazards of keeping your poo forever? <laughs> I suppose it depends yeah. where you keep it. Uh, <laughs> if you keep it... Uh, if you keep it inside you, this could become problematic because yes. everyone produces, on average, about a quarter of a kilo of poo every day. So, uh, roughly every week, you're going to accumulate about two kilos of poo. And that's a wet weight, admittedly. That's quite a big volume. Mm. And you would, you would have to grow quite large to keep on accommodating this stuff. If you kept the poo in your house, which is, oh, they, they don't discriminate. Well, they don't discriminate. They just say keeping your poo. Um, you, you'd have to have a very large house because if you think about it, how, how many people there are on earth and therefore how many number twos there are done every day. Um, there are seven billion people give or take, on Earth, and assuming all of them does a quarter of a kilo of poo every day, you just have to work out that's a quarter of seven billion um, kilos of poo every single day. It's a huge amount, and if we're not careful, then it does pollute the Earth, because poo contains a whole load of stuff, which includes infectious agents like gut infections, which can be passed on. And that's actually why, when human populations first began to live in towns and cities, although living in towns and cities is really good, because it means you can have people doing 
exciting things like science while you've got farmers producing food for everyone to eat. So cities mean that human civilizations accelerate their development. At the same time, if you don't worry about where the poo and we go, then you're in real trouble because there's a very big opportunity for the infections carried in those agents to spread very, very quickly amongst your population. And so that's why the really big step forward in human health actually came when people realised this in the late 1800s and they began to clean up cities and provide fresh water and the London sewers that uh, Bazalgette put in they made a huge difference to the number of people who got sick with things. And so as a result, suddenly people realised that fresh water and sewage provision can make a much bigger contribution to human health ever than medicine can. And that's absolutely true, sad as it sounds today. But but then again, uh, Chris, just going back to, you know, delaying or postponing going to the loo to relieve yourself. I know I grew up being told that when you're pressed, you need to go to the loo immediately. You can't hold on. You can't keep your urine in. It's dangerous and so on. Is there any truth to that? And does the <laughs> same apply for the other stuff, number two? Um, with we we goes into a into the bladder and the bladder undergoes something called receptive relaxation it's a muscular bag which as you put more into it it stretches and stretches now when a person does an average size we they're losing about a quarter to a third of a liter of urine it's possible if someone goes into urinary retention because they don't go because they've got a problem like a prostate problem their bladder volume can reach a liter so in other words, the bladder doesn't burst, it just keeps on accumulating more and more urine. But as it does so, eventually the pressure will begin to rise inside the bladder, and this will have a knock-on effect back on the kidneys that put the urine into the bladder via the ureters, muscular tubes that carry the urine from each kidney into the corner of each bladder. And that knock-on effect going backwards onto the kidneys can cause something called hydronephrosis, mm -hmm. and this can damage the kidney in the long term. But holding onto your urine for a while is not harmful and in fact sometimes people are encouraged especially if they have a, a weak bladder they're likely to need to go or feel urgency the sudden urge to rush to the loo to go people are sometimes encouraged to train their bladder by getting it quite full before they go because this can help with bladder control in terms of number twos if you don't go for absolutely ages then the downside is that instead of not following through with the urge the number twos the feces that are sitting in your rectum will continually dry out because that part of the bowel will continue to remove small amounts of water from them and what that means is you, you'll get something a bit like a rock up there and when you do try and go it will be like trying to pass a cactus to put it bluntly and this will make it very very injurious painful and this will cause all the machinery in that area the sphincters to go into spasm so that when you do try and go, it will be even harder to go and you're even more likely to injure yourself and you're more likely to succumb to problems like anal fissures, which are little tears in the mucosa there, which are usually caused by actually passing motions that are too hard. So that's why people encourage people to not sit on it for too long and be anally retentive, which is where the term <laughs> comes from, because you can actually damage yourself wow. if you end up with something a bit hard and dry to try and pass. But it's more a comfort thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rams, there's your answer. Let's go to Joan in Rodiport. Hi. Thank you both. Hi there. Uh, my question is as follows. I'm, st I'm quite worried about the fact that the availability of illegal drugs in our society largely affects young people. And it's these young people who are fertile. I would like to know how does the, the illegal substance, how do illegal substances uh, affect the formation of sperm 
uh, abnormalities in sperm and ovaries. Okay, so how did that, that, that affect your reproductive health? Chris? Yes, hello, Joan. Um, this is something that people are worried about, and one of the agents that's been quite well studied is tobacco and cannabis. And there's evidence that cannabis can affect the behaviour of sperm. Um, in the same way that cannabis makes people very laid back, um, there's evidence that it has the same effect on sperm and they don't swim very fast. They, they get very kind of lazy if you're exposed to cannabis. There's also evidence, um, well, and of course that will affect your fertility because if the sperm don't swim very well, they're not going to fertilise an egg. But that effect is to a certain extent reversible. So if you don't take any more cannabis, then the sperm should return to normal. But more worrying is a finding that when people do both smoke but also especially with cannabis, when they are using those agents, the process of making sperm involves rearranging your genetic material because you take your DNA and you halve it in a random way. And that makes sperm that contain half the amount of DNA you do so that when the sperm meets an egg from your partner who also has made an egg that contains half her DNA, when you put the two halves together you get a whole genome. But cannabis makes that rearrangement process break so people can produce dna which is more prone to carrying genetic damage or mutations so the resulting pregnancies can either fail or they can be less healthy because the babies can carry various additional mutations so there can be a health risk there in terms of other drugs the the threat really comes from people adopting unsafe sex procedures mm. when they're using them so if people take drugs that make them lose their normal inhibitions and their normal caution when approaching sex, then that means that they may not have a problem genetically or a problem with their direct fertility at that moment, but they might then catch something that does have a knock-on effect downstream. It could be HIV, it could be chlamydia, it could be human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer. Just because of loss of inhibitions, and alcohol is a really good example of this. We know that when young people go to parties and drink too much, then they're much more likely to lose their normal inhibitions sure. and act inappropriately or, or act without due care. And then these agents get passed on. And in Britain, I mean, we've got a terrible problem with teenage pregnancies because lots of young people go to parties and they forget themselves. And, okay, they may not get pregnant because they might be using an oral contraceptive pill, but what does happen is that the exposure to the things they pick up mm. when they're doing that then has a lifelong knock-on effect. So it's a very important point, Joan. Absolutely. And, uh, Chris, you know that question I asked you about poo and urine? I hope we'll move on from there. But there's an SMS that came through. It says, really, I'm a plumber and I'm loving this talk. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a, a bowel surgeon isn't much different. <laughs> I'm not a bowel surgeon, of course. But, uh, yeah, I suppose that they're, they're well plumbed into that kind of stuff. Yeah. George in Edenvale. Hi. Hi. Um, how do you calculate the surface area of a hilly place? And mountainous place like the valley of a thousand hills. Okay. Hello, George. Um, I don't know, is the answer, how the map makers actually do that because the reality is if you draw a straight line and you connect it up to make, say, a square shape, you can measure the length of the sides of the square and calculate the area of that square. But if you were to get, zoom in and then measure the lines that make the sides of the square, you see they're wiggly. And so if you were to zoom in close enough, you'd find that the lines were so wiggly that if you measured the length of all the wiggles, then the perimeter of your square would grow and grow and grow and grow and grow because of all these little wiggles. So I think the same is going to apply to making a measure of a country. If you just draw a rough outline of the country on a map and say, well, look, here's the edges and the area is about 
this much, you're going to get a very different answer to exactly, I think, as you're trying to suggest, that if you've taken into account all this hilly terrain because you've got this additional land area. How they get round that, I don't know. I hope maybe someone listening can help me out and explain the basis of how you actually make those Mohs measurements accurately. I suspect there are computer programs that, that can look now at the, the relief mm. and can work out um, by doing very careful visual analysis what the area is. I, and I think that's probably how they're doing it. Okay, if anyone else has a different idea, we'd love to hear from you. You can send an email to reedy at 702.co.za or reedy at capetalk.co.za or even better, phone us. Lynette in Durbanville. Clement and Mark, I see your calls. Hi, Lynette. Hi, good morning. Mm. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is about neurofeedback. I've read quite a few studies on neurofeedback, but I wanted to hear your opinion on the efficacy of neurofeedback on ADD and depression. Neurofeedback? Yes, that's Okay, correct. On, uh, for ADD and depression. Hi, Lynette. I don't think I, I don't think I'm qualified to really comment on it because I don't know enough about the process. And I think if I was just speculating, um, I might mislead you. So, um, may I take that away as homework and try and find out a bit more about how it applies with, especially things like ADD and depression because they're so emotionally loaded. Mm. I don't want to speculate and say the wrong thing. Absolutely. So please let me take that away and I'll find out for you. And, and alternatively, if you write to me, chris at thenakedscientist.com, I will f- write back with what I find out. Okay. Uh, Mava, I'm putting Lynette back on hold. You can give her the email address or she can email us and then we'll forward it to Chris. That also works. Clement in Bryanston, hi. Hi, really hi, Chris. Mm. Um, I'd like to find out about the distilled water. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a theory that says you boil the water and then it steams out and then it drops and then becomes distilled water. How is it uh, uh, compared to the very distilled water that we use in the battery of the car compared to the one that, that we buy from the filling station? And how is it compared, again, to the very um, rainwater, which is always that it contains no chemical? Mm. And how, how do you go about, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, composing, I mean, uh, bringing out the distilled water? Hi, Clement. Um, when you make distilled water, what you're doing is giving energy to water which contains both water molecules, H2O, but also some dissolved salts. Because when water is in the environment, it picks up salts and other ions from the environment. And those ions are chemically active. And so if you put that water into a chemical reaction, if it's got those ions and chemicals in it, then they will take part in the chemical reaction too. And that could affect the ability of that chemical reaction to go the way you want it. And in a car battery where you've got, say, sulfuric acid and side plates, if you've got other ions in there, they can compete with the process that's trying to make the electricity in the battery and reduce its efficiency. So you don't want those other chemicals in. So you take the salty water and give the water molecules energy and what happens is that the water molecules eventually have enough energy that some of them can break away from each other and they turn into water vapor or steam which does not contain any of those dissolved components because the dissolved impurities need a lot more energy before they can boil off in this way than a water molecule does. So if you then collect the water vapor using a cold surface in some kind of condenser you get water which is distilled and therefore said to be pure. You can, by carefully controlling the conditions, really reduce the amount of impurity in there. Um, Deionized water is similar, except that this can be done by using partially permeable membranes that only water molecules can go through and other ions can't. Um, In terms of rainwater, 
This is less pure than distilled water because when the rain comes down from the cloud, it's in contact with the atmosphere and therefore any gases or other particles which are in the atmosphere have an opportunity to dissolve in the rainwater. And the classic example, of course, is sulphur dioxide, which comes from burning fossil fuels from sulphur and volcanoes. This can react with water in the atmosphere and produce sulfurous and sulfuric acid and come down as acid rain. And also CO2, carbon dioxide. This would react with water molecules to produce carbonic acid. And so you'll have hydrogen ions, a bit of acid, and carbonate ions and sulfate ions dissolved in the rain that comes down. So rain is, although much purer than, say, the sea or a lake, still nonetheless contains small amounts of dissolved substances. Distilled water should be about as pure as the water can get. And if you want to go really, 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 really pure, you can buy laboratory-grade molecular biology water, which has been, it's basically been purified to within an inch of its life. And that stuff should contain absolutely no impurity whatsoever. All right, let's go to Mark in Senton. Hi there, Mark. Thanks for your patience. How's it, guys? Hi, uh, my question is regarding the uh, heat, um, energy or intensity of a flame of a candle. Why is it that I could hold my fingers literally at the side of the flame compared to the intensity at the direct top of the flame where I have to hold my hand at, at a distance? Hello, Mark. Um, the reason is if you look at the shape of the flame, you can see which direction it's going in. It's going upwards. And the way a candle works is that you have the body of the candle, which is made of wax, and embedded in that is a wick. And when you apply a flame to the wick, heat from the flame melts the wax, turning it into a liquid, which then moves up the wick by capillary action, with the molecules pulling each other up. And as they get closer to the flame, heat from the flame turns the liquid into a vapour, and the vapour rises up and mixes with oxygen coming in from cold air entering at the sides, combusts, and then this hot combustion gas, being very less, much less dense than the air around it, rises in the same way that a hot air balloon rises, because it's warm air. And so therefore most of the energy, the heat, is being directed upwards. So the hottest part of the flame is at the top, right at the, right at the top above the tip of the flame. The coolest bit is actually at the sides, down at the bottom, because that's where the cold air is coming in to feed the combustion process that's happening in the flame. If you took your candle into space, though, on the International Space Station, it wouldn't be like that, because the flame would not know which way was up and down, because it would be in a weightless or a microgravity environment and um, therefore there'd be no up and no down and the flame wouldn't have the normal flame shape it would burn like a ball and therefore very quickly accumulate waste products because no fresh air could get in and it would go out thank you very much mark for your question and chris that's it then our first show for the year we look forward to a wonderful 2011 thank you so much for your time as always Brilliant. Thanks for having me, Rudy. Great questions too, everybody. Absolutely. Take care. Have a good week. Stunning. And I didn't even read half the SMSs. We'll save them for next week. And of course, our feature with the Naked Scientist is always available as a podcast.